Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, I'm Dave Hendon. And I'm Michael McMullen. Uh, welcome to the Snooker Team Podcast. You see, we're trying something new at the top, and I'm happy. I've still got top billing, which is only only correct. But uh, anyway, there we've tried something new there, and it seemed to work quite well. I think you're labouring the point now, Dave. It was barely worth doing, let alone talking about for the next two minutes. Well, what will be worth talking about is everything else in the podcast. Um, welcome again, everybody. Now, of course, we're recording this as the Masters has begun. We're going to be talking... Uh, there's been a lot of uh, criticism about the BBC, which we're going to address shortly. Um... We've also got, uh, we're going to be talking about social media. Uh, of course, uh, quite a famous person was thrown off Twitter last week, but uh, snooker players as well have got a rather difficult relationship, I think, with social media. We're going to be talking about that. Uh, but we st- and also we're going to go through some of the emails that have, uh, that have built up over the last few weeks. Um, but we're going to start with the biggest subject of them all, which, of course, is Garfield 2, A Tale of Two Kitties. Um, mm. now, now, regular listeners will be aware that... Um, it was brought to our attention that Phil Yates uh, appeared in this, uh, snooker commentator Phil Yates appeared in this voice only, um, this film, and uh, it was actually on on Christmas Day. Now, last week, if you listened to our Masters preview, I actually discussed this with Phil. Um, he uh, he talked about it. But David Grace, it was on Channel 4. I think you told me about this. It was on Channel yeah. 4 on Christmas Day. Yeah. I actually watched a little bit of it with my um, three-year-old son, and any time he sees a snooker table appearing on television, he shouts, Championship! And I tried to point out to him, no, this is actually the Premier League, but he lost interest by then. Yeah, it's an important nuance to learn at the age of three. Mm. Um, anyway, but David Grace was saying he was watching it. Now, he, he said he watched it uh, basically on fast forward. He couldn't bring himself to actually watch it. But uh, the, the scene that, uh, that uh, allegedly featured, and I've seen this, I've seen the clip of this, but the scene that's supposed to feature the, the snooker, it was actually in the version he saw, it was darts. So oh. there's obviously, there's all already, I, I'm not saying this podcast is responsible, but already there, there's maybe, because I said Phil should have been paid for it, maybe it's been hastily re-edited. I'm not saying that's the fact, that, that's, that's what's happened, but, but maybe, maybe that, that is what's happened. I suppose what they were trying to do was just get in a quintessential British sport. And I mean, obviously yeah. the top two are snooker and darts, but thankfully they didn't stray into the territory Friends once went into, in which they seemed to think that darts was a Scottish game. <laughs> Which I don't know where they got that from, 
But uh, right, well, that 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 changes the whole thing, doesn't it? That there are actually different versions of it now. I think the uh, the the one I saw on Christmas Day certainly it was Phil in it, and I think it was Willie as well. Was was uh, there's a couple of words if you listen very carefully that he says as well. Who knew that Garfield Two, A Tale of Two Kitties, was so mm. nuanced that they would do a sort of separate director's cut? <laughs> it's, like, it's like Francis Ford Coppola has, has just reconfigured Godfather Three. Who knew this? This Garfield Two was uh, in the same league. Anyway, anyone else has got any more information on all this? If you've seen it and you want to uh, want to tell us about it, then then feel free. Uh, now, very quickly, you may remember we did an episode a few weeks ago, uh, the John Higgins Triple Crown. It was called, right? Mm. You'll recall that. Well, and That's I said. I said very glibly uh, after, when we were finishing the discussion, I said, I said, because we said he'd invented the triple crown, that was the whole point. And, and I said very glibly, there you are, John. We blame you if you're listening. Well, <laughs> I went, I was at the Championship League last week and I went down to breakfast and John was sat there. And I sort of sat on the next table to socially distance. And he sort of, sort of you know, very polite, John. He sort of uh, just sort of t- turned my way and said, what's all this you've been saying on your podcast about me? <laughs> so he, he is aware of it and I talked about it. he had no memory at all of um of what he said um and he didn't seem that bothered either way but um yeah so uh they always he, he word travels fast in the podcast world um but uh yeah he, he he wasn't he didn't sort of um he didn't sort of accept responsibility neither did he seem to care either way so well uh, it's it's like a lot of these things that you get I mean he probably forgot he'd used the words triple mm-hmm. crown about two minutes after he'd said it and it's like when you know, you see a story, you know, something like, say, for example, you know, Jurgen Klopp insists that, you know, Real Madrid can win the Champions League this season. And then you see the, the grab and it's someone saying, so do you think Real Madrid are in with a chance? And he's going, yeah, I suppose so. And yeah. these things just get built up over time. <laughs> well, no, yeah, that's it. Because that's the language of sports journalism. You know, so-and-so insisted. Like, yeah. no, no, you've asked them a question. They've answered it. They haven't yeah. like to come be, in. To be polite, they've gone along with you. Yeah. They haven't come in banging the desk. Oh, I ins- no, they're answering your question anyway. That's well, yeah. listen. We've been in that game long enough not to not to be hypocrites about it. Um, let's talk then about so the first big topic really. Uh, Mark Allen did an interview in one of the papers uh, just recently. He'd come off Twitter and he was explaining why basically because of the vile <laughs> the vile sort of stuff he'd got and a lot of it was around the champion champions. He's involved in that kind of running, I guess you could call it Ronnie O'Sullivan in their match. Um, but also, and, and this is kind of a common thread, I've spoke to a couple of other players, got Karen as well, he, he'd come off Twitter because he had some vile stuff. I know Sean Murphy took a long break from it. And a lot of other players, I think Mark Selby actually has, has got rid of his account on Twitter. Quite a few players that were, were quite active on there have come off. And, you know, the reason is because they've had some horrible uh, feedback from people. Quite often, it is people who've had a bet on a match and it's not gone their way and they blame the player because it's you know, apparently their responsibility to make your money. Um, other times, it's just, just nasty people. And of course, this is the problem with it. You know, I mean, I've been on Twitter for 10 years. Um, overwhelmingly, it's been a positive experience for me. You get to speak to snooker fans. You get to find stuff out. If you ever want to know something, you put it on there, someone will know the answer, which is great. Um, now, you also get, of course, you know... People come on and think that think they're sort of you know insulting you is is a nice way to spend their time. You can just mute them, you can block them, you can do all that stuff. Um, but it, it does seem to have taken a bit of a turn, I think, for the worse. Um, it, 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 I think it's a, let's use an analogy. If you go into a pub and you see uh, a group of sort of people fighting or doing or just being obnoxious. You can either go somewhere else or you can you can leave the pub. Now, with social media, that's the same thing. You can just come off it. 
But it's a shame when players do because it is an opportunity for them to express their personality, not filtered by the media, not filtered by newspapers or television. They can just be themselves. But I guess what's the point? What's the benefit if you're just going to get stick all the time? Yeah, but you see, if you say to people, oh, you should just come off Twitter if you don't want the abuse, suddenly they're pointing the finger and saying you're victim blaming and probably slagging you off on Twitter about it. And just to expand your, your pub analogy, if there were two pubs in your village and you went into one and people were hurling abuse at you, well, you'd stop going probably after one night of that and just go to the other one instead. So why would it be any different on Twitter when you've got the whole world there to hurl abuse at you? I think the benefits of it are, are just massively outweighed by you know, what you leave yourself in for, and particularly if you are you know, someone really in the public eye and very high profile playing snooker or any other sport on television. I just don't know why you would want the grief. I mean, I opened a Twitter account 2011, and it was when I was still doing my um, show on a national radio station in Ireland. So they were very keen for me to open a Twitter account. So I did, and I never put anything on it other than stuff to do with the show itself and issues surrounding it. And after about six months, I started getting really, really, really mild abuse. Like, I mean, it mm. wasn't in, in any way upsetting, but I just thought, I'm just going to nip this in the bud and just stop. And that was 2012, and I'm not popping back on, and I have uh, no intentions of ever getting back onto it. Well, here's the, th- here's the thing. Let's just go back to the... By the way, pubs, by the way, they were things people used to go in to drink together. Yeah, so, yeah. Yeah. But here's the thing. Okay, you could argue. Okay, that you say, yeah, okay, you go to the pub, it's no good. Maybe the people who own the pub should should work harder to make it a nicer experience. And this is the thing with these platforms. You know, it's all well banning Donald Trump when he's got a week left of his presidency. What about like seven or eight years ago when he was mm. started the whole Bertha uh, rumor about Bar- Barack Obama and all that stuff? You know, um, and to me, what, there's one thing they could do, which which I don't know how enforceable it is, but it would make pretty much overnight improve things drastically, and that is force people to register under their own names and they are identifiable under their own names they're not using pseudonyms if you go on there, it's like a passport you have your photograph you have your name that's you and what you say you have to be responsible for that will cut a lot of it out because suddenly you know people will not be quite so brave with their opinions if they're not hiding behind a pseudonym but the problem with that is once that takes effect somebody else sets up mm. another equivalent where you well that's why they haven't that. done it absolutely yeah. that's why they haven't done it yeah, and it's com- so it's completely impossible to regulate. And that's why I'm a little bit unsure about kicking Trump off Twitter, because what happens then? Does he go and use his money to set up some mm. other thing, which is even more vile? I mean, well, it's he- just all so completely out of control. And there's, there's no answer to it except just handle it in your own life. Just get off the thing. This is the thing, though. I, I personally feel there are positives. Like, I mean, just in the sort of theatre work I've done, I've met so many people on there through that literally through Twitter, which, and I'm not sure what other platform mm. I would have, I would have done that on. And in, in the snooker world, let, let's be clear. There are a lot of just ordinary snooker fans. They want to ask questions. They want to give their opinions, They're completely harmless. They enjoy the snooker and that's fine. And I would say they're in the majority. The problem is though, when something, and I could completely understand this for snooker players, you know, you've lost a match. You're disappointed. Say, let's say Mark Selby, the semis of the world championship. Okay. He had a great chance there to win a fourth world title. Two it with three to play, loses in the semis and they decide it's Ronnie O'Sullivan. Why does he want to come off and wade through that cesspit of bitterness, as you called it? Mm, exactly. um, you know, why why bother? And I think Mark's come off it now, which is a great shame because, you know, he's a completely harmless individual, isn't he? Um, so, yeah, it, it's, it's, I'm not sure what, what the snooker authorities can do. Probably nothing. He's out of their hands. But I do think it's a shame that the, the best thing about a platform like that, which is that you can interact with snooker players, is also the worst. 
the worst thing is that people who have an axe to grind, have a grudge, or just, you know, are bored in their own lives, have nothing going on, and want some sort of reaction from someone off the telly, you know, behave like that. It's a great shame, but it's clear if you, if for those people who are on Twitch, I'm sure they'd agree, you know, people are coming off it, players are coming off it, and, you know, what, what the next big platform is, I don't know, but it, it just seems a shame to me. Anyway, that's, uh, by the way, you can contact me on Twitter at Dave Hendon, mm-hmm. but, be, but be nice. <laughs> you know, we're mm-hmm. all human beings. Um, okay, well, I think I discovered that. Now, yeah. uh, I just wanted to say about the, 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 there's, there seems to be a bit of a drumbeat going on. Obviously, we're in what's what the sort of experts have said the worst part of the pandemic at the moment in the UK, this is. Um, and I've noticed a few stories appearing should the snooker be on, you know, because in football, uh, there are serious questions to be asked about, you know, what some of the how they're, how they're operating, let's just say. But of course, the problem is <laughs> in, in the sports media in Britain, everything is seen through the, the medium of football. And the fact is, the two sports are completely different. Snooker has proven that it can operate safely in a single location. Football, by its very nature, in the in the league and the cups, it's groups of people moving around the country. You know, so they they risk spreading and they risk they they're under more danger, I guess. We're at Milton Keynes, we've proved it can work. There's absolutely no reason it should stop unless, of course, you know, there are sort of guidelines brought in by the scientists. I'm a bit sort of wary of these people trying to sort of link all the sports together. Every sport's different, mm. isn't it? Yeah, and correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding when football was brought back in the UK last summer, there were very strict guidelines. No handshakes, no high fives, none of the traditional sort of celebrations. That seemed to go out the window almost immediately. And I've definitely noticed over the last month or so, I've been watching a lot of matches, and it now seems to have been completely dropped. I think since probably early December, players are acting and managers exactly the way they would have done pre-pandemic. So about three weeks later, around late December, suddenly there was a massive surge in the number of players testing positive. Now, I know footballers aren't exactly known for their intelligence, but I mean, it's the easiest game of join the dots ever. And even a couple of days ago, it was said, oh, you know, we need to clamp down on this. We need to remind players of their responsibilities. It doesn't seem to have had any impact whatsoever on how players have behaved. And certainly that, that yeah. was the indication over the weekend in the FA Cup. So, I mean, if you just don't stop the players from behaving like that, of course you're going to have all these cases and maybe you should be stopping it. But I do agree with you. I mean, snooker obviously is completely different. Is it entirely safe? I mean, how do you know? Because someone could pick it up, pass it on to someone else. It's very difficult to say. But But certainly, at the very least, you can't just throw all the sports in together and treat them the same because they're conducted in very different ways. Well, you look at like rugby union, rugby league, I mean, they're literally contact sports. So they're, they, they are by their nature, you know, more dangerous. And I think to, to defend sort of footballers even, you know, they've only ever played one way in their lives, you know, to suddenly be acting differently in the heat at the moment is mm. must be very difficult. But I don't really, I don't see any case at the moment for snooker to stop unless, of course, things get a lot worse or unless, you know, obviously the law could change, then we're going to have to. But, you know, the fact is, and this links into what we're about to talk about, um, I know for a fact those five tournaments that, that happened, or was it four tournaments, whatever it happened into Christmas, you know, that kept a lot of people going, actually. You know, there a lot of people mm-hmm. stuck indoors who wanted something to watch, and we had a lot of, I mean, the viewing figures were really good, and that kept a lot of people going. And that, that links into, of course, the Masters have started. Um, the BBC essentially are not showing on traditional television the afternoon matches live, which they've done for many years. The reason is um, they are, because the schools are shut in the UK, they are showing educational programs um, to help 
kids who are stuck indoors essentially sort of, you know, learn. Um, all very laudable. And, of course, they're a public service broadcaster. A lot of people, though, are not happy. A lot of snooker fans are not happy that they can't even watch it on the red button. It's on the, the iPlayer stroke sport app stroke your connected TV, all that stuff. Um, of course, it's also on Eurosport now. Um, yeah, there was a lot of uh, sort of opinions both ways about this. I thought it was quite interesting. A lot of people defended the BBC, said, look, this is more important than snooker. And a lot of people said, well, hang on, we want to watch the snooker. Here's the thing, okay, so the BBC is a public service broadcaster in the best way. And with the schools closed, they're providing a vital service. Um, I also think, though, they have a duty to elderly viewers. Now, I know people literally who have not left their house since March because of this lockdown, because of all the, the problems. They've been stuck indoors. And particularly in the winter, you know, you can't maybe can't even go out for a walk. Um, and these people overwhelmingly don't understand what the app is, how, the, how all that stuff works. They don't know if they can receive it or not. To them, even the red button can, can be sort of mysterious. They're used to watching on traditional channels, BBC One, BBC Two, etc., BBC will always, because it's such a, you know, it's an institution in, in the UK you, that's been there your whole life, it'll always have its staunch defenders, it'll defend it for anything, it'll always have its staunch critics who will batter it for anything. I think neither position really is, I think both positions are quite absurd, actually. I think you just you just look at every case on its merits. And I think you can be a, a strong believer in the BBC, as I am, while still slightly questioning this decision. We, we, you know, you keep, a lot of people say, oh, well, we should be grateful they cover it at all. No, we shouldn't. If you pay a license fee, it's your money that's been spent on the sports rights. So you're entitled to question how then that is received when the actual tournament takes place. Um, I've written many times, spoken many times about the BBC's contribution to making snooker a professional sport that it's become, it's, they're probably most responsible through Pop Black and, and through their support of the the early tournaments in the 70s and 80s but it's 2021 now so it's fair to ask what are they doing for snooker now it's a very odd time um and i can absolutely understand why people would say well look you know schools programmings are more important but they have this channel cbbc now that's for children it's actually a children's channel i looked at their schedule for this afternoon they're not showing educational programs they're showing there's a drama series and then blue peter you know programs that yeah kids stuck at home might want to watch but they're not actually uh, necessarily schools programs. Mm. Um, BBC, Garfield two in the lineup at all? No, mercifully no. not. No, that I mean that. Yeah. No, come on. Uh, <laughs> you know they're trying to do the right thing, absolutely. But a lot. Of, the fact is, a lot of people stuck at home would like to watch the snooker. And coming on in this day and age, coming on at three o'clock and showing it off tape, it just seems so anachronistic. It's like they're saying, well, there's no other way you could find out the score. Um, it's like the episode of the Likely Lads. Oh no, what, what possibly what could the score be? People can find stuff out these days. So it's not a satisfactory situation. One thing I would say in their defence, though, is, to, to, and you get the going back to Twitter, you get these people defund the BBC. You know, shut up, get in, the, get in the sea, as people say. The fact is, there isn't another broadcaster in Britain that would do this, for, for in terms of educational programming, because every other broadcaster is commercial, and it would not be in their commercial interests. So on that on that basis, I would defend the BBC. I just think it's unsatisfactory. It's a shame for snooker fans, and like I say, a lot of money's been spent on, you know, paying to show the Masters. So with all the outlets they have, I know in, in the evenings, in fairness, they put it on BBC Four, so that's good. But it just seems people stuck at home, particularly the elderly stuck at, stuck at home. You know, they pay the license fee too. They they would like to see the snooker. 
The thing is, I was wondering, why not just bring BBC Four on a few hours earlier, you know, run it well, during the day and show it there? I mean, is it really that no, hard to do? Yeah, it is, because they share their space on whatever the spectrum is, like we, like we understand it. But they, they share their mm. space with CBBC. So that channel is available to me. And, and li listen, I'm not an expert, really. I'm sure there are reasons this doesn't happen. But to me, put the school's programming on the children's channel that already exists. Put the snooker on BBC Two. Everyone's happy then, aren't they? Yeah, you can imagine, though, the machinations and the mm. sort oh, yeah. of po political yeah. toings and froings that go on with all of these things. And what was it? W1A was the name of the program. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you know, I know it was a comedy and it was very good at times, but, you know, I'm sure it's very, very true to what actually oh, goes yeah. on in there. So, you know, and, and to be honest, even if you knew everything that had been said in all those meetings about this decision, you probably still wouldn't understand what any of it was about. So, yeah, it is a bit of a shame, but same time, it's very old school, isn't it? Because, I mean, I think there were times they used to come on at maybe four o'clock in the afternoon. And yet also, you think back to probably about 1998, 99, maybe a little bit later, there was BBC Choice, wasn't there? Where yeah. they, they were actually coming on uh, there with the morning sessions, as I recall, from the UK Championship. Uh, which there were at that time. I think Mark Johnston Allen maybe even presented it for a while. So you, you would never have imagined, you know, in that environment, when that was clearly the way everything was heading, that 20 years later would now be in a situation where there'd be no coverage of the Masters at all until two hours after play had started. No, uh, and listen, it's, look, we're in the middle of a pandemic, so the usual rules don't apply. I do think there's a little bit, though, of, OK, because the, the BBC have their have a charter, that's renewed every, I'm not quite sure how, how, I think it's every 10 years, basically. And the current Conservative government are not necessarily that well disposed to the BBC. So this is a good way for the BBC to say, look, we're, we, we serve our public service remit. We're doing all this good work. It seems to me Snooker's just been caught in the crossfire of that a little bit. But look, it's, it's a, I, I don't think there are absolutes here. I, I think, like I say, people who defend them, people who criticise them, there's actually a bit of both here. Um, I'm bound to say it's on Eurosport, but I know not everyone has Eurosport. I understand yeah. that. I don't understand the, that. Go on. The, the one thing I love about the BBC, and I think I maybe said this to you recently, I, I just find it amusing, obviously, as an outsider from a different country, but, you know, we have the BBC here, so I'm very familiar with it. It is not quite impossible, but almost impossible to find anyone in Britain who is the least bit politically engaged, who isn't utterly convinced that the BBC... Yeah is either a left-wing conspiracy yeah. or a mouthpiece for Boris Johnson. You yeah. very rarely meet anyone who has an opinion that's anywhere in the middle of those two things. And I, I, listen, I'm not even taking a side on that. I just find it quite amusing that I remember the last time I was in England was a few weeks ago, and I was talking to a couple of people who would be very much Labour-leaning, and they insisted, oh, it's so biased towards yeah. Boris Johnson and the Tories. Well, the reason, but then yeah. you'd, you'd speak to someone from the other side, and they'd say, God, can you believe how lefty the BBC is? And yeah. whatever the rights and wrongs of it, it's just funny to see it's so polarised, and very, very few people have any opinion that's anywhere between those two extremes. Well, there are two reasons for that. For that. The first is that overwhelmingly people want their worldview reflected back yes, to them. And, yeah. and, and this ties into social media because you can actually, if you go on social media, just follow people you agree with. Your worldview actually is completely skewed. You think, oh, wow, everyone just agrees with me. Actually, they don't. Um, and, uh, but the other reason is because actually people care about the BBC. That's, that's why mm. you know, they care and they think, oh, you know, I mean, listen, we could have do a whole a podcast on, on the sort of BBC, but you know, it, it's it's a sort of institution like the NHS. If it ever went, we'd you know we'd really miss it. Anyway, um, one thing I will say as well, it's got nothing to do with the people. This, these decisions have got nothing to do with people actually who are producing the coverage, IMG yeah, and all that. Of course, the, well, they, they do. They it's, probably... a it's a scheduling issue. That's yeah. what it is. 
I'm sure that you know anyone involved in the coverage and producing it and being involved in it would, you know, 100% choose any day of the week to be starting at one o'clock. So it's nothing to do with them whatsoever. And as we say, the machinations that have probably gone on have been with people that nobody connected with snooker has probably ever ever even heard of. It's just one of those things. I hope it doesn't spoil people's uh, enjoyment of the tournament. Let's go on to the emails then. We've a few have built up in recent weeks. Um, what have we got here? Uh, well, we've had a few actually, because you very uh, carelessly made some comment about. I think I don't know whether you were sort of full of the Christmas spirit. We should do a live show in twenty twenty. Yeah. Well, the, the more I think about it, the more yeah. I'm on board with it. Yeah. Well, a lot of people uh, seem to seem to agree with you. Um, anyway, James Cook, he's our correspondent in America, or one of them. Um, he just sent us a, a nice message here. He said, I wanted to say Happy New Year to you and your families. A sincere thank you for keeping me sane and entertained in what's been a difficult year for many. I mean, if that's our responsibility, James, then, then I apologise. Oh. He said, um, you made me laugh a lot with the nicheness and have elevated me to near rock star status with the family, with the frequent readouts of my emails. Brilliant. He's an easily pleased family there, isn't it? He said, uh, looking forward to more snooker entertainment in 2021. Now, here's the key thing. Make a note of this, OK? He says... I promise that if the situation allows, I will buy both of you a drink and say thank you in person. Well, we won't forget that, James. Oh. Right, <laughs> is he going to come to the live show and do that? I hope so. I'll need a drink if we're going to do that. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Well, let's, let's hope if we do manage to get this live show on in 2021, it's more successful than an evening with Clive Everton, which uh, I was due to host. You mentioned that last time, I think. Oh, did I mention it? Uh, okay, well, uh, then we don't uh, need to go into it. No. It will definitely be more successful than that. Yeah. James Turrell writes, I'm a long-time fan of the podcast, keep up the good work. Just as a footnote to the discussion on the apparent increase in frostiness between Ronnie and Mark Selby, I was surprised you didn't mention Ronnie's comments earlier in the season when he said, to be considered a true great of the game, you had to have won at the Crucible at least four times. To be fair, I think he mostly said that so he could include John Higgins in the select group due to the immense respect he obviously has for him. But I think it was also obvious he was implicitly excluding Selby sat on only three. I'm not sure Mark was too impressed by that inference. And so I think that is certainly in the mix of why they seem to have so much tension between them now. Whereas Mark Williams also sat in three wins, typically couldn't care less when he was told about the comments. So laid back as to be virtually horizontal. Well, Graham, you may be right there. I don't know. I mean, you know, if you ask Ronnie today, he might say winning one world title made you a great. So, yeah, but it's, there's no doubt there is tension between Selby and O'Sullivan, as there should be. They're, the massive, yeah. they're massive rivals. Why wouldn't there be? Yeah, it's really good, actually. And so long as it doesn't get out of hand, which I don't think it's come anywhere near getting out of hand and becoming, you know, a bit unsavoury or whatever. It's never got near that level. Uh, I think it's been really good. You know, I think there was a bit of a bit of an improvement in relations maybe about four or five years ago. But now we seem to be back to that sort of 2008, 2009 uh, kind of level uh, where there really does seem to be tension between them. And I think Mark is quite happy about it. So I think he's benefited from it. I think yeah. sometimes it's really got under Ronnie's skin. So Mark is quite happy. I think, to keep it going and, you know, maybe wasn't reluctant at all to stoke it again when they met in the final um, of the Scottish uh, quite recently, particularly after I think Ronnie had got under his skin at the Crucible. But uh, that, that comment, I mean, I think that was entirely pointed, what Ronnie said. I think it was entirely meant to, to exclude Mark Selby. It reminded me a bit of Jose Mourinho a couple of years ago when he was literally shouting at the press that he deserved respect, more respect, because he'd won the Premier League three yeah. times, which, as an Arsenal fan, I found quite ironic given that only a few years earlier he'd described Arsene Wenger as a specialist in failure when he'd won it three times, at a time when Mourinho himself had only won two. So there were echoes of that in what O'Sullivan said. Well, I remember uh, seeing that. It's fair to say Mourinho did insist that day when we were saying about yeah, people. He was yeah. insisting. Yes, yes. <laughs> uh, Alpha Bonzi, another regular correspondent. Mm -hmm. Happy New Year. 
that last bloody 2020 is behind us. Well, from from my from what I've seen of 2021, it's, it looks like the house in days, Alpha. Anyway, that, that, that's that, that's the thing. I think people thought, you know, once yeah. Jules Holland came on with the Hootenanny, <laughs> you know, Ruby Turner, you know, came yeah. on and sang a few numbers, that everything would be fine in the mornings. It's a bit like those people who believed that, you know, the day after Brexit, suddenly, yeah. you know, the schools and the hospitals and the police would all be world class. And well, you know, so 2021 so far has uh, been anything but an improvement. But go on. He said, I like Michael's idea of a live snooker scene podcast. All being well by April, May, we'll get close to the end of this COVID nightmare. Maybe you can both host it at the Crucible with the 2021 world champion as a special guest. You see, this is this is escalating now. We've now mm-hmm. got to get, like, I don't know, Ding Jun Wee or someone on the podcast. It's not, it's, not, it's, not, it's not escalating in the slightest. The Crucible is a come down. I was thinking Madison Square Garden yeah. up until now. Yeah. Anyway. He said, congrats to Barry Hearn for the OBE. Aside from the Anthony Hamilton Crucible withdrawal, Affair, which I think he handled badly. He's led snooker brilliantly. It's thanks to him and his team that the calendar is so full, prize money so good, despite the loss of Chinese events and money. His honour is well earned. Shame about O'Sullivan and Spotty. That's a BBC Sports Personality of the Year. Your correspondent who suggested that snooker didn't really rally around him, and amongst the players themselves, O'Sullivan is a divisive character. I think he's largely correct. It's true O'Sullivan does himself no favours with his chip. With cheerfully admitting he doesn't practice and playing on the snookers when 60 behind. Mark Selby is right when he says that if he started doing that, he'd receive dog's abuse. But O'Sullivan's run to the world title from out of nowhere, age 44, is the reason he should have placed in the top three. Well, ultimately, Alpha, it was a public vote and, uh, you know, the public voted somewhere else. Now then, we've got two emails here that are on similar subjects, so I'll read them both out and then we'll discuss them. Morgan Nock is the first one. He said, um, I hope this email finds you well. Happy New Year. Love the podcast. Keeps me going through the night shifts at work. Having not played snook, much snooker since childhood and having attended the 2019 Scottish Open final, in the last year I've been trying to rekindle my love for playing the game as well as watching it. Of course, the lockdown has put pay to that for now. My question relates to table conditions. What are the main differences between the tables in your average club and the ones the pros use on the tour? For example, do they use a different type or grade of cloth entirely or does it simply require constant maintenance to keep it up to tournament standard? As a sub-question, possibly dependent on the answer to the above, do the pros have their own table at home, have to do a lot of upkeep, or will they have someone coming in to maintain their table for them? And Ray Morgan, on a similar note, he says, I'd like to say a few words of appreciation to Barry Hearn and his team for managing to keep snooker going through the pandemic. As someone who's been shielding since March, this has been a godsend to me, as are your very enjoyable podcasts. Thank you, Ray. He said, you recently spoke of the 79 Masters, where winner Perry Mann's highest break throughout the tournament was only 48. No one can deny the standard of play has risen exponentially since then, but how much do you think the following have played in increasing the standard? Thinner cloths, lighter balls, under-table heating, various extensions that replace the fishing tackle with the wine gum tip that they previously used. Finally, how do you draw the line between unlucky and fortunate and cause and effect? Well, that last bit, actually, that's a whole discussion on its own, I think, about luck, which we'll come back to. But in terms of conditions, conditions have definitely improved. Uh, and you, you, the things you list there, Ray, are the reasons the thinner cloths um, the, the the lighter ball, slightly lighter balls. That means when, just for example, when you go into the pack, they're going to open more easily than they used to. Uh, the under table heating helps helps the table run really nicely, and all the extensions as well. Absolutely. In terms of uh, the first question about the difference between tournament standard and club standard, I mean it's absolute night and day, isn't it? You know, I mean the point is the tables at tournaments are constantly maintained. Um, they get reclothed every few days. They they are installed by the best table fitters in the world. Um, who constantly monitor them between matches, brush and iron them, all the rest of it. You know, they couldn't be looked after better. In a club, you just don't get that because you, you don't have the resources. 
it's two completely different games. I mean, the first time I played on a proper tournament table was about five years. No, actually, of course, I would have played on the practice tables at Bournemouth <laughs> back in the 90s. <laughs> um, you know, although the thing is, I was actually a reasonably good player then. I mean, I've, I've not really played that much over the last 10 years or so. But I do remember going to Nigel Bond's academy the day after the world final in 2016. And I had a few shots on the table and it was incredible. It's like playing a completely different game. And I played on the practice tables at the Masters maybe about two, three years ago, something like that. It puts you off wanting to go and play in the club again because it's, it's just completely different. And it's a funny thing. It's like you would say, when you describe it to people, it almost sounds like you're saying that the tournament tables are easier. Mm. But it isn't like that at all. It's a very difficult thing to explain. I suppose it's more if you're a decent player that you can rely more, I guess, on the tournament tables. But the ones in the clubs, I mean, they couldn't possibly afford it. wouldn't make economic sense at all. It's hard enough to keep clubs going nowadays anyway. But if you were going to have those you know, tournament level cloths and we're changing them all the time, then it just would make no sense at all. So, I mean, the cloths go on and they stay on for months. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's just complete difference between the two. It just feels like a different sport altogether. And you know, it, it's why it's very, very difficult to compare different eras. When we did our top ten players of all time a few months ago, and we both had Ray Reardon in the top ten, it's very, very difficult to compare him to what's going on now because he was basically playing a different sport. I mean, you, you just watch the way the ball moves on the table back in his era. It's just absolutely beyond any sort of comparison whatsoever. And that's why it was such a different game. And some of the shots and some of the tactics that you see employed now, you just couldn't have done back in those days because the tables weren't set up for it. Yeah. And in terms of the question about, you know, people who have tables at home, I mean, they, they tend to be installed by actually table fitters who work on the tournaments. Um, and they will come every so often and put the new cloth on and, you know, help to maintain conditions for the players. There's only about 10 players, 10, 11 yeah. players, I think, who have, who have tables at home. Um, and it seems like a big advantage at the moment. But actually, what they would do in normal times is invite someone around to play with them. They can't do that now. So actually, they can practice on their own. But in terms of the best practice really is playing someone else. And they can't do that. So it's maybe not as much of an, as an advantage as you may think. Um, the, Ray asked the question about... about um, what was it, how he phrased it, about uh, how do you draw the line between unlucky and fortunate and cause and effect? Very hard, I think, because luck is the one thing that you can't manage. The only thing you can try and manage is, is your reaction to it. But even then, um, you know, how do you define luck? I was thinking about this the other day. There was a, in the Championship League, there was a, a shot where a player was playing, playing to get top side of the blue to go into the pack directly, you know, into the nose of the pink and all that, mm. and got the other side of the blue. Um, came up, so played, played, still played to get into them off two cushions, bought cushion, side cushion at pace, got into them and knocked a red in, right? Now, on the face of it, that's unlucky. But you could argue if you'd have played the first shot correctly, and got top side, that might not have happened because he's coming in at a different angle. Um, so I think luck is kind of, it's the great kind of, not unknown, but it's the great sort of unproven area in snooker. Um, but it, it plays a big part and you, you ultimately can't really complain about it because it's a bit like being the captain of a ship complaining about the sea. It's there. You've got to just cope with it, I'm afraid. And sometimes you see a shot described as unlucky, but then you think, well, it's not really because he, sh he actually should have seen that coming. Mm. You know, sometimes when a player goes into the pack and knocks a red in, whatever, people always say that's unlucky, but sometimes it actually isn't and that maybe they should have spotted that danger because it was obviously going to happen. So it's a difficult one, but... Look, you know, I know there are some players who have a reputation on the circuit for having, you know, the run of the ball and having a lot of luck. Well, I mean, Stuart Bingham's nickname, isn't it, of course, is Ball Run. But 
I don't really believe that. I mean, how would that even happen? How would someone just be lucky or unlucky in that sense? I think it's such a cliche, but actually sometimes things become cliches because they're true. I think luck probably more or less evens itself out. You know, some days, as Ronnie would say, some days you're the bug, some days you're the windscreen. I'm not sure that's entirely what, what you know what he meant by it, but it, it, <laughs> well, it's not something. Go on, it, it's not something to think about probably too much because you know it, it, you can't grumble about bad luck unless you're also going to you know grumble and you know feel bad about the good luck that you get because you will get both. It's interesting though how many players come off and only remember the things yeah. that went wrong with that, and that that actually says something about their character rather than what actually happened in the match. Well, well, the, yeah. well ju- just before you do, there's a great little story actually. Dominic Dale, who we know very well, I think. He came in after a match once and he sat down. I remember David Gray telling this story. I think he'd finished his match around the same time. And Dom apparently spent about 20 minutes detailing every single bit of bad luck he had had in the match. Now, you know what Dominic's like. I mean, you know, he makes us look, you know, quiet by comparison. He just Mm. never stops talking. And uh, apparently after this 20-minute diatribe about all the bad luck, he actually finished it by saying, it left me speechless. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, there we are. Uh, James Wan says, Happy New Year to you. Hope your show's a brilliant 2021. Thank you, James. He said, I would like to ask you, can you remember the GOAT debate, greatest of all time, in the 90s? The reason for my question, it seems the only argument against Ronnie being the GOAT is that he's two world titles shy of beating Hendry's record. Was this the case in the 90s when Hendry was annihilating everybody? It's hard to imagine anyone back then would deny he was the greatest as his success grew. After all, he was playing a new type of snooker, and reaching new levels in the sport. Were people really saying back then, ah, yes, but wait till he bags seven world titles and overtakes Davis, then we can give him the all-time crown? That seems preposterous. Similarly, are we facing the same thing now with Judd, who's playing a new type of snooker and reaching new levels, but he isn't even in the GOAT debate? As an extension to this, who else was in the GOAT debate in the 90s? What were people saying back then? Well, of course, Ted Lowe, um, God rest his soul, uh, it was was convinced that Joe Davis, I mean, he knew Joe, he saw him play, he said, oh, he's better than any of these guys. Um, and of course, Joe Davis did win 15 world titles, albeit in a very, very different time. My, my memory is, I actually think quite early in the 90s, people were saying that about Hendry. I think mm. uh, because he kept winning and winning and winning and winning and winning and winning, I mean, literally the Masters five times in a row. This is the thing, like, when we talk about, I'm not going to use the phrase because I, I promise never to say it again. But when we talk about those majors, shall we say, right? Um, big three. And, yeah, how many times you've won them. Okay, that's one thing, how many times you've won them. But to keep winning them year after year after year, world titles, I think he won five in a row. He won five masters in a row, etc., uh, etc. Cetera, et cetera. So I think quite early, I would say quite early in the 90s, people said he'd overtaken Davis. I may have that wrong, but that's my memory. No, of it. I, I think you're right. I think you're right. I think probably by the time he'd won maybe four world titles, I think people were starting to say that. Certainly 1995, when he won it for the fifth time. Uh, I actually definitely remember just before that championship, I'd just been to see the Shawshank Redemption. So that'll, that'll place it in history. Yes. Um, I was in college at the time, and I went with one of my classmates. The, sh- he, he... the, short, the Shawshank, but just to butt in, yeah. if, if, if you ever do a questionnaire with a snooker player, with yeah. these sort of facile questions, if you ever say, what's, your, what's the best film ever? They, they usually say that. It's kind of like sports people. That's, that's the go-to. Anyway, continue. Yeah. yeah, when they're having their talk about greatest ever films, yeah, that, that, that's what they say. But I remember actually, I think it was just before. And, it's, just and by the way, it's not the, it's not the right answer. But anyway, carry on. Well, okay. Well, that's definitely a matter of opinion. But the um, I forgot what I was saying there. Oh yeah. So either before or after that, I remember one of the lads in my class who I actually used to play a bit of snooker with. 
although I stopped because he was the slowest player in history and he had this weird thing about chalking his hand before the shot. But anyway, that's, that's another story. But I remember talking to him about who was the greatest ever player. And even then, I was saying Hendry. And that was even before he'd won that 95 championship. So certainly by that stage, people were saying it. I know there's one very well-known player who's now involved in television. I won't say who it was. But he, about 20 years ago, said Alex Higgins was the greatest player of all time. Mm. I mean, where, where on earth do you go with that? But uh, yeah, look, the, the, the who's the greatest debate? Certainly by the 90s, it was only Steve Davis and Stephen Hendry. Nobody could reasonably put anyone else forward. And equally now, I know most people say Ronnie O'Sullivan. I mean, I completely see where that's coming from. I still slightly shade it to Hendry, but I wonder, do I have a bit of unconscious bias there going on, to use the, the current buzz phrase? But nobody else would be in that conversation. I mean, probably the third greatest would be John Higgins, but nobody would reasonably suggest he could possibly compete, even as the third greatest, with either of the two who would be ranked above him. Of course, we've done a whole podcast on that. If you want to go back yeah. into the archive. Mark Baisley, which strikes me as a very snooker name, Baisley. Yeah. Anyway, um, he said, uh, as a relative newcomer to the podcast, I've been listening to a few episodes from earlier in the year, and Michael's inclusion of the British Open in his top 10 tournaments list reminded me of something brought in for the last couple of editions in it. Now, actually, just to cut in, Mark, while I remember this, I actually saw, you know how you go down YouTube wormholes and just mm. end up watching stuff? The 80, 1986 British Open, okay, there's a clip on YouTube of, of the first broadcast. Um, and Dickie Davis, the great ITV presenter, fantastic presenter, actually, Dickie. Yeah. Uh, he started by saying, and remember, this is, I think this is the last tournament before the World Championship. He started by saying, hello, welcome to the, our coverage of the British Open, the biggest tournament of the season so far. Um, and actually, and, and actually I, so I, looked, I thought, that's a big claim, Dickie. I looked it up, and sure enough, it had much bigger prize money than yeah. what the UK or the Masters. I mean, literally, it was, it, was sec it was second that year behind the World Championship. Sorry to bring this up, John Higgins, if you're listening, but there we are. <laughs> <laughs> well, the... Um... It was the first tournament to have a £50,000 first prize in, uh, in 1985, actually. And then certainly 86-87 season, it was 60000 for the winner, which I think was the same as the UK Championship that year. And definitely more than the Masters, which I think was 51000 well, to the winner that season. Well, the overall prize money was double the UK Championship that season. In the 85, right. you know, the, the famous Thorn Davis final. The overall prize money in the British Open was... Anyway, we're getting sidetracked. Mm. So Mark continues. He said, as I recall... A dress code was used where the high-ranked player in the match wore a red shirt and oh, the lower-ranked yeah. lower player wore a blue shirt. Uh, this was extended to the arena being dressed in a similar fashion as can be seen in videos of the 2003 British Open on YouTube. I suppose it's just remembered as a fleeting gimmick now, but I was always a fan of it and thought it gave the tournament a unique and, as far as TV presentation went, vibrant identity. I know the Home Nation series has its own dress code, but both players in black shirts and the refs in white isn't quite the same. Would this work better there? Or could something similar be brought back today in any of the events on the calendar? On a similar note, I seem to remember the group of players who were sponsored by Paddy Power early in the 21st century wore green waistcoats, with gold waistcoats as an alter alternate for the lower ranked player if two of them met in a tournament. Of course, this fell down in the 2003 World Final as both Mark Williams and Ken Doherty wore green. If memory serves me correctly, I think it was because Ken felt the green one was his lucky waistcoat. Not that it turned out to be that lucky in the final. <laughs> I appreciate this is a very niche strand of snooker history. Well, we don't mind that, Mark. Um, yes, I remember that at, uh, at Telford, I think it was, the British Open. Um, yeah, it was, a, it, was a, it, was a, it was a gimmick, yeah. Um, did it add anything, really? I mean, obviously, you said you enjoyed it. Um, we've talked about the dress code before, and I think it always, you know, they've, they've tried various things around the same time um, they 
they, the players didn't wear bow ties. Um, and to, to the casual view, it just looked like they'd forgotten to put them on. Um, and the other sure. thing about that was that it, it was optional, and some players were wearing their bow ties, and some of them weren't. So you just thought, well, what's you know, what, what is, you know, what's this supposed to be? You know, the, the I remember the, the the first tournament they had that for was the LG Cup, and it was Peter Ebden, Stephen Lee in the final, uh, and Ebden I remember was was I mean to be fair, I know he had his critics, but he was always impeccably turned out. Mm. He was wearing the bow tie, and Stephen Lee wasn't, and. They were being encouraged to wear different colours of shirts, you know, wear an orange shirt or a purple shirt or something. And I remember one high-ranked player saying, well, I don't really mind either way, but if it's going to bring new sponsors into the game, then I'm all for it. And I mean, how was that going to happen? How was it going to bring new sponsors uh, into yeah. the game? The thing was, at that time, you know, we talk a lot about the sort of civil wars that were going on in snooker at that time. That, that was the early 2000s was probably the low point of all that. So all of that, that was just a distraction from yeah. the fact that the circuit was collapsing. Prize money was going down. There were fewer tournaments. TV deals were being lost. So what did we do? It was, you know, it's like this office I used to work in where things were going really badly. And it came in one day. The chief executive had decided the problem was that our desks were too big. She so was having all the desks taken out and be replaced with smaller ones, which only created a problem because then nobody had anywhere to put anything. So everything just ended up on the floor. It was ridiculous. So it was a very similar sort of thing with what was then the WPBSA 20 years ago. All of that was just to try to distract, to look as though they were doing something for the game, when in reality, what was going on was that the game was it was in real trouble at the time. Yeah, and we've said before, I think um, when it comes to the dress code, like most people in smart clothing look relatively smart. You know, you wear a suit, you, there's a certain level of smartness. There are certain people who will kind of look good in any clothes. You think of like someone like, I don't know, Jack Lazowski's a very handsome chap, isn't he? He's going to look good whatever he wears. Not everyone does look good in a T-shirt or a, or a shirt or whatever. But the waistcoats, you know, they're kind of, they're a con continuity thing. We've said before, like kids in junior tournaments like to wear them because they look like the players on TV. I don't think there's anything wrong with trying to new things, but it's all, to me, this is all peripheral stuff, really. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, it's a branding exercise, fine, but... You know, does any of it really matter? I'm not. I'm not so sure. Um, well, uh, just if I can just come back in there. We haven't we haven't mentioned Fergal O'Brien yet in this week's podcast, <laughs> so I'll mention him now. When all this started to be talked about round about 20 years ago, I remember asking him what did he think about it. He said, "No, it's actually kind of a rite of passage. You know, it's when you feel you're a proper snooker player and going to get your dicky bow and your waistcoat, and players love it all." So. But does anyone really notice? I mean, you've said before, and I completely agree. Once people actually start playing the match. Nobody's thinking about what anyone's wearing. They couldn't care less about it. I think that's right. But, you know, yeah, basically, it's a bit like the Mistral. You know, people sort of criticise it, but they can't really think of anything better. And the waistcoats, you know, they're kind of, they, you're, that's what you identify with snooker, isn't it? Anyway, our last email, it's a long one, this, but it's, she's taken a lot of trouble to write it. So I'm going to read it out. It's from our Italian correspondent, Matilda Tomassi, who's uh, contacted us a few times, big snooker fan. And now this does touch on a subject I, I promise not to speak about again. But as I say, I'm reading an email. OK, this is not my this is not my thing. OK, so Matilda Wright, she said, when Ronnie won his 19th Triple Crown title at the UK Championship in 2018, Hazel Irvin remarked in her interview that he was now officially the greatest, a comment which I've never felt was necessary since it was all but official for a while already. But previous to that, she compared his achievement of 19, now 20 Triple Crown titles to the likes of other sporting greats, such as Roger Federer and Jack Nicholas. Ronnie then commented that they have four majors to go at, whereas he only has three. So his strike rate is therefore better than theirs. But if we accept the premise, and I personally don't, that the Triple Crown is comparable to, say, the tennis Grand Slams, 
is this actually true? I thought I'd take the time to compile some statistics and see where these averages stand. I've included some of these in the table down below as I think they're the most interesting, but I will leave a few more down below. Now, obviously, the table we can't see on the podcast, but when, when she says, I thought I'd take the time, she believe me, she's taken the time, okay? Mm. So the first section is called methodology. She said, I did a very simple calculation. I tallied each player's total number of appearances in each sport's respective majors and compared them to the total wins, first dividing one in, into the other to get, a strike, to get a strike rate of one in whatever. So, for example... The players were 50 majors from 100 appearances, their strike rate will be one in two. Then I also did a percentage calculation. This is a little bit like how Chris Downer started with the Crucible Almanac. Um, and, uh, you know, there's all sorts in there. So, she's, for example, she's got Roger Federer, he's, uh, sorry, Rafa Nadal has played in 60 tennis grand slams. He's won 20. So, strike rate is one in three, 33.3%. Serena Williams, 76 grand slams. She's won 23. She's won in 3.3, et cetera, et cetera. You've got a whole list. Ronnie O'Sullivan, this is the, the interesting thing for snooker fans, he's played in 79 of the Triple Crown events. He's won 20. So he's won one in 3.9, which is 25%, so basically a quarter. So she says, it turns out, firstly, that it's a hell of a lot harder to get a good strike rate in golf than tennis or snooker. The, the leading golfer on it is Tiger Woods, uh, one in 5.7. Uh, that, that he's won in terms of the uh, the majors. Um, it also turns out, I've all, as I've always, always known in my heart, that Rafa is the undisputed goat. Well, uh, undisputed is a big word there, I would say. <laughs> uh, certainly with me, because I'm a Federer man. Anyway, he said, I decided to, to only include, with the exception of Jack Nicholas, players that I consider modern greats, though I have a few more things to look at. Hazel also mentioned Phil Taylor in the interview, citing his 16 World Darts Championship wins as a comparable example. I find this comparison a little dubious. Cards on the table, I know nothing about darts, but from what I can tell, they only have one major. I hate just like snooker. Well, I think that's probably, yeah, I mean, it's interesting. In darts, they're trying to do the same, actually, as in snooker, and try and say, well, you're the world match player and so on. But really, the world championship is, is the major, isn't it? Miles <laughs> ahead, yeah. Yeah. He said, in any case, if we factor in his 16 wins from his 29 appearances, he clocks in at an astonishing strike rate of 1 in 1.81. That's 55.17%. Some of the notable names would include Margaret Court and Steffi Graf, who achieved strike rates of 1 in 1.96 and 1 in 2.45, respectively. Pete Sampras manages to stay ahead of Roger Federer in this respect. Interestingly, Stephen Hendry's strike rate of 1 in 4.28, 23.38%. He's not too far behind O'Sullivan. Of course, with Hendry opting to take up an invitational tour card, and we can guess with no disrespect that he will most likely not collect any more professional trophies. That strike rate is likely to drop in the future. But then again, so will Ronnie's, unless he can manage to keep a consistently good rate of triple crown wins for the remainder of his career. Believe me, we're nearly at the end of this. So she, she says, let's say, for example, that he was to retire at the end of the 2026-27 season, but in the meantime collected another six triple crown titles, keeping to his rate of at least one per season for nearly the past decade. Let's also say he managed to not miss a single one of them. This would leave him with 26 titles from 99 appearances, which would net him a strike rate of 1 in 3.8. That's 26%. One fewer title, that rate would drop to 1 in 3, 3, 1 in 3.9, uh, 1 in 12, 25%, anyway. Well, one fewer still, he would drop to 24%, and so on and so on. If he wishes to stay ahead of Hendry in this very particular niche statistic, and why wouldn't he, he might, he might like to avoid doing what Steve Davis did by carrying on as professional well past the day he lost over winning major events. So, the conclusion of all this, no, 
Ronnie O'Sullivan's strike rate in snooker majors is not better than the other, other modern greats in individual sports. In fact, it's quite average. Well, that's Matilda's assessment. I think average is a little harsh, to be honest. I mean, yeah. you know, I mean, he's, you know, he's won 20 of those. If you're going to band those three together, he's won 20 of them. And the point, actually, Steve Davis didn't, didn't carry on playing for, for his statistics. He carried on playing because he loved playing snooker. But that's the reason Stephen Hendry didn't carry on playing. He, he didn't love playing just for the hell of it. But very interesting analysis, which you've taken a lot of time over, Matilda. So thank you for that. Um, yeah. But the thing about it is, I mean, surely you'd rather win, I don't know, say five world titles, even if you're only playing it for 15 years, then win, you know, three in eight years or whatever. I mean, it's the number that you win. It's not, you know, (laughs) and you think of Jack Nicklaus, for example, who's won more golf majors than anyone else, but he was still playing in them when he was 65. And at that stage, it was almost 20 years since he'd won one. And I don't really think he'd been close to winning any in the meantime. So, you know, you've got to bear that in mind as well. It's just... It's like how many apples make an orange, you know? We, you, we were saying earlier, only a few minutes ago, it's almost impossible to compare Ray Reardon with the modern-day greats, and that's within a single sport. So trying to compare across a number of sports, which all have different contexts and all have different lifespans for players and different requirements and different formats and all the rest of it, I just think it's completely impossible to do. But look, at least she's uh, certainly shown dedication to, uh, to the craft there in terms no. of uh, trying to come up with some figures, so fair play for that. Very interesting, um, and I think what it what it proves is you know it's the, these big tournaments are hard to win. I mean, if mm. if if a twenty five percent strike rate is considered sort of not great, well, I think most players most players want to win one of those events once. They don't care. I mean, it's interesting. I saw a thing Matthew Said, who I seem to mention, he's the new Fergal O'Brien. I yeah, a lot. The sports writer for the Times, former table tennis player. He wrote an interesting piece. I can't remember what it was about, but there was some, and this ties back to what we talked about at the start on Twitter. There was some outrage about something. I can't remember what it was. And he said, he wrote this whole column, the, the number of which was that sports should be about more than stats and morality. In other words, what about the actual just joy of, if you go and see Ronnie O'Sullivan or any of these top players, Judd Trump, any of them, Neil Robertson, Mark Selby, whoever, playing great stuff and you're a snooker fan and you go home on the bus or the train or whatever in your car, happy that night, then that's enough, isn't it? It doesn't really matter. Like, I mean, I love a stat. Don't get me wrong. I absolutely love a stat. But th- we mustn't sort of lose track of just the joy of the sport and what that sport can can do for people and, and you know, cheers people up, doesn't it? That's why we need it on the telly at the moment, because it just cheers people up. And there's not enough of that in sport, actually. Mm. I think the way a lot of sport gets covered now, it's almost like it's life and death and losing a match is a dreadful, dreadful thing and, you know, someone needs to be held accountable for it, particularly in team sports, I guess. And there's very little joy in it, as it seems, for a lot of people now. And I think, you know, if you're not going to have fun with it, you know, maybe it's a naive approach, but I, I just think if you're not going to find it fun and enjoyable, then, then really, what's the point? And it was interesting, last week at the Championship League, Gary Wilson uh, lost the plot. <laughs> yeah. John Higgins. He did something very stupid, which he admitted was stupid afterwards. I think at the mouth that went on online about it. I mean, all right, he was wrong. It was interesting, though, the timeline, because the day before... And they weren't to know, but Will Snooker cut together this two-minute uh, video of snooker players basically doing what Gary did, which is getting angry, smashing the table, smashing balls around, obviously the shoulder barge, and just generally, you know, cue bangs, all that stuff. So that was, and that was essentially a celebration of angry snooker players. Then Gary did that the next day, and Jason Ferguson, who's a friend of the podcast, WPSA chairman, went on Twitter and criticised him. Literally 24 hours earlier, I know he's not Will Snooker, he's WPSA, but 24 hours earlier, the governing body had 
put out a video celebrating exactly what Gary then did the next day, and he got battered for it. And there was one guy tweeting me, said, they should throw the book at him. Well, what book? What book? What book? The sort of moralizer's handbook. Is that what they've got to throw at him? He was wrong. He admitted it. You know, it didn't actually make any... The only person who suffered from it ultimately was him. Hopefully he'll never do it again. But it's just heat of the moment stuff. And like I say, not everything is, is there to be kind of, you know, analysed and moralised about. It's supposed to be fun, isn't it? It's funny the double standards you get about things like that sometimes. You know, you might see you know, on, on the sports news somewhere, you might see two different reports. One will be about, you know, someone who, I don't know, commits a slightly over-the-top foul and people are, as you say, moralising about it. In any sport it could be, or if, you know, someone in a cricket match maybe engages in a bit of sledging. I know there's been a lot of talk about that, actually, in the last few days. Um, and, you know, again, there's a lot of hand-wringing and throw the book at them and these people are role models and all the rest of it. And then in the very next scene, you'll see like, a, 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 you know, say an ice hockey match in Canada where, you know, they've all ended up beating each other over the heads with their sticks. Four of them have been taken to hospital. Two of them have got broken legs and it's all played for laughs. Mm. So it's funny how people take different perspectives on these things at different times. And certainly, look, the bit of anger from Gary, as you say, you know, he was the only one who suffered from it. He acknowledged afterwards that it was wrong. And it's a game that can get into your head and, and these things happen. But, you know, if that's as bad as behavior gets in the sport. Mm then uh, I, think, I think we'll be fine. My final question to you. I know the tournament started, so you're, you're the head start, but who's going to win the Masters? Cool. It's always such a difficult one to call, isn't it? Uh, because, I mean, everyone, everyone in it, pretty much, well, except Dave Gilbert. I know he's won his first match, but he's not been in great form. I was actually thinking about this. Maybe it's Kyron Wilson. Maybe it's going to be his mm. time. He's been a little bit under the radar, to use that expression. He's been quietly climbing the rankings the last few months. Not quite, you know doing enough to really get himself mentioned among the very biggest names, but he's been doing quite nicely. And yeah, maybe it's going to be his time. As you say, though, I'm at a bit of an advantage because uh, he's already got through the opening round, which uh, gets him off and running. Well, of course, myself and Phil did the preview last week. And obviously we weren't to know that Judd and Jack would pull out and they were both in Karen's section. So that's got to be, oh, an, yeah. advantage. Got to be yeah. an advantage to him. It just has. Anyway, we'll see. The Masters continues all week. Uh, any comments about anything you've heard or the tournament or anything to do with snooker, our email address is snookerscenepodcast at mail.com. That's snookerscenepodcast at mail.com. We haven't worked out, uh, you know, we had that extraordinary start, the new start, but I haven't worked out a finish. What I will say, though, is Phil, poor old Phil, doing the Championship League last week, he, um, he got stuck between, uh, he was signing off a broadcast, and he got stuck between saying goodbye and bye-bye. So he ended up saying, thanks for watching, everybody. Goodbye-bye. <laughs> so maybe well, that's, not- how we, that's how we should end the podcast. No, 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 knowing him, he'll probably claim that's a real word round Dudley and he just wanted to bring it to a wider audience. Well, I say enjoy the Masters, everybody. We'll see you next week. And for now, it's goodbye bye. <laughs> Sports Social Podcast Network.